0: Well, from the sound of it, you'd think you people were happy he's alive. (laughs) Indeed. Mark 16 is our text this morning. It's very important that we're very careful not merely to assume our assumptions, but that we explain them on occasion. The same is true with the resurrection. This morning, the message will be very basic when it comes to the resurrection of Christ. And because it deals with much of the foundation of our faith, uh, it will, I I think, probably be old and new to some. We're living in an increasingly secularized world. I was never really taught the Bible when I was young, but I knew of the resurrection of Christ because those around me in my Uh, town and where I lived, even in my family, would talk about these things. So it will be profoundly basic. It reminds me of the old pioneer who was traveling out west, and he was making good time until he came to the Grand Canyon, and he stopped, and he was amazed at what he saw. He looked at the Grand Canyon, it's a mile deep, it's 18 miles wide in some places, 100 miles long, and he looked at it, and he said, something must have happened here. And from the existence of the church and its relentless mission, its worship, its praise, we look at the empty tomb and we say something had to happen there. And indeed, I've got good news for you. It did. And what happened that day has dramatically affected the most basic issues of the Christian faith. It's affected what we understand about the future kingdom. It has affected what we know and believe about the cross of Christ. Our our very own faith and trust in the Lord as well. And then the church, what it's all about in its mission. So I want to ask and answer the question this morning, so what if Jesus rose again? What difference does it make? We're going to read Mark chapter 16 and I need to make a real quick note about the text here. There are some of your translations, the modern translations, that will bracket verses 9 through 20. I think that's too bold. The translators probably should have left it alone. The New King James is a bit more modest, but the other new translations are a bit too bold, bracketing this and explaining it as they have. I know something about textual analysis and textual criticism, and they're entirely too bold. I will say to you that verses 9 through 20 are taught in other places in the biblical text. There's nothing heretical here. And I have a strong suspicion that's original to the text in Mark's intention and Peter's intention especially to include it. So the bracketing and the footnotes there are entirely too bold for textual analysis. I've got confidence when I preach Mark 16, I'm preaching the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb... They saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And he, she went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that. He appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues or languages. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. What difference does it make that Jesus was physically raised from the grave? Well, there are several I want to mention to you, and we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment as well. But the first is this, Jesus' resurrection clarifies the substance of the kingdom. What will the future kingdom be like? Will we be disembodied ghosts? Will we be disembodied spirits? Is the future in the kingdom metaphorical and is it figurative? I will say this. The future kingdom is like the body of Jesus raised from the dead. That's what the future kingdom is all about. So why is there a future resurrection? Wouldn't it be enough for our spirits just merely to enter into heaven well the text gives us some clues what we're dealing with here verses 1 through 5 we have a physical empty tomb we have a physical body raised from the dead in verses 9 12 and 14 Jesus bodily appears before his disciples and the women in verse 15 he actually speaks in the other gospel accounts he has wounds in his hands and feet and I believe he still bears those today and then He eats fish and demonstrates that he indeed is physical, but in a glorified body. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 and on apply that to those who follow Christ. Beginning in verse 52, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Now, they're raised from a grave, and what is there in a grave? A body, a physical body, but this one will be raised and transformed into something incorruptible, not subject to death or decline or disease. And we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? In other words, the change over our physical bodies, those who follow Christ will be so radical we can stand and mock death and mock the grave and the intimidation that the grave has brought to the people of God through the years. And the staggering sorrows it's heaped and hoisted upon its shoulders shall be over and done because as Christ was raised, believers shall be raised from the dead as well. Jesus Christ will pull this off and you shall be you and I shall be me. Now don't be too disappointed with that. The truth is is that we'll be raised incorruptible and immortal. So there is a physical resurrection because the future kingdom is physical. And so this clarifies the substance of the kingdom. So Jesus' resurrection was physical because the kingdom is physical. Jesus' resurrection previewed believers' future as well. And so when we die and go to heaven, we go to a heaven that is actually a temporary holding place until the day of resurrection in the kingdom. And so the future kingdom is very earthy. It's material, it's physical, and it is spiritual, and it is soulish as well because of what Christ has done in his death and resurrection. Our resurrection, those who know Christ and follow Him, will be a physical, material, glorified, incorruptible, immortal existence because that's the way the future kingdom is. So the resurrection clarifies the substance of the kingdom. But there is a second thing the resurrection does. The resurrection certifies the power of the cross. When Jesus died, John records in John 19.30 that he cried out, Tetelestai. In the English, it is finished. That word Tetelestai is an official court word from Roman courts. When a criminal had served a sentence, they would write across his accusation and his crimes and the record of that, Tetelestai. And he could carry that document with him. And if anyone ever surfaced in front of him, or to him, his crimes and guilt, he could remove that from his pocket and show, my debt is paid. I have served my sentence. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he cried out, Tetelestai. I have served the sentence for the sins of the world. I have paid the debt. Now, how do we know that that is true? How do we know that Jesus Christ, in fact, did pay for the debts of sins of the whole world? In fact, Jesus is so confident in his ability to forgive. Did you see in verse number 7? He said, Go tell my disciples and Peter. I'll meet you where I designated earlier. He can extend to Peter, the one who denied him three times, forgiveness and salvation and grace. He goes that far in his offer of forgiveness. How is it that Jesus Christ can claim my death on the cross is sufficient for your sin? If you'll only believe, if you'll only trust my cross and repent from everything that keeps you from it, I will offer you eternal life and cancel all of your sins. Why in the world should we believe such a staggering claim from one who died? Beloved, we believe it because Jesus rose from the dead. You see, everyone is looking for some kind of certification. And frankly, we appreciate that. We appreciate that restaurants are certified by the health department. When, uh, when we visit them. We appreciate that doctors are certified by a board of licensing. Uh, we, We appreciate that teachers are certified in their testing. College graduates and high school graduates are certified that they've completed a course of study with their diplomas. We need certification because we need assurance and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is certification that heaven accepts the cross of Christ. Heaven accepts the death of Jesus as payment for our sins. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised on account of our justification. So you can trust the death of Christ because he was raised from the dead. And today he's available to you just like he was to Peter to cancel your sin and erase your past and uh, rid you of the guilt of sin. The resurrection certifies the power of the cross. But there's a third thing that it does. The resurrection confirms the certainty of our faith. It confirms the certainty of our faith. You may ask, do you really believe in the resurrection? You bet I do, and I think the whole world should as well. And there's some reasons why. Verses 8 through 14 make it abundantly clear. We find first his public appearances. In verse number 9, now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Mary could stand, if it were, in a court of law and testify that she saw him alive. Verse number 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went through the country. We assume that's the, uh, the road to Emmaus. And so he appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to two others. I don't know of an attorney in the world that wouldn't appreciate three eyewitnesses to an event. And this is what happens here. Verse number 14, later he appeared to the 11. And so you've got one, and then you've got two, and then you've got 11 who can testify that he's alive. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4 through 8, Paul said that Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. Somebody may say they were hallucinating. You don't have the same hallucination of the same thing at the same time at the same place. Psychologically, that just doesn't happen. I mean, it doesn't happen to me. My hallucinations are all unique every time they happen. And I know yours are too. And so, uh, but that, that's just not something that takes place. The truth is, is that Jesus Christ appeared to more than 500 people, and there's not an attorney in the world that wouldn't appreciate more than 500 witnesses testifying to the truth of what they have said. Witness Now, ladies and gentlemen, none of the other world religion leaders can claim this because they are all still in the grave. Jesus Christ is risen, and to testify of that He appeared. Now, all of the world religion leaders do claim some kind of supernatural experience. They do. Each one of them claims that. But each of them had a so-called supernatural experience in private. But when God does something, He does it in public in the midst of many witnesses. And that's what took place here. So Jesus could present for His case eyewitnesses more than 500 to declare we saw Him alive after He was dead, His public appearances. But then His bold witnesses, they told, Mary Magdalene told in verse number 10. In verse 13, the two on the road to Emmaus went and they told it. And in verse 20, the apostles and the disciples went out and they told and preached everywhere they went. Are you familiar with the national tragedy called Watergate? There were a couple that broke into the Democratic headquarters and tried to dig up some dirt on a couple of political uh, opponents. President Nixon covered it up. He and 12 of his inner circle sought to cover that up. And President Nixon was found out because John Dean turned evidence before Congress and the 11 others followed. Chuck Colson was one of them. And soon after that, he came to Christ and gave his heart and life to Jesus right before he entered into prison. And God changed his life, and he was reflecting on all of this and the resurrection of Christ. He said, back during Watergate when I was guilty, he said 12 of the most powerful men in the world could not hold on to a lie. But in the resurrection of Christ, twelve of the most powerless men in all the world insisted on it, even though they were threatened with death. And the bold witness they had, ladies and gentlemen, is a marvelous testimony to the resurrection of Christ. People do not die for something they know is a lie. His bold witnesses. Now, you may object and say, well, ancient people were predisposed to believing miracles. And I mean, they were easily fooled. And you could convince them of a miracle even though there's a natural explanation for it. Oh no, look at verse number 11. And when they heard that He was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And then, verse number 13, they went and told it to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. And Jesus appears to them in verse number 14, and He has to rebuke their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Beloved, they were no more disposed to believing miracles than the most skeptical among us. And yet, something happened to change their mind and for them to give their lives for that message, the only reasonable conclusion is Jesus is alive from the dead. There's a fourth thing that the resurrection does. And that is the resurrection compels the mission of the church. The resurrection fuels what we do. We're thrilled that He's alive. We believe the message of His resurrection and we do something in the earth about it. His mission. Now there is the location of His mission which compels us in verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. In other words, the message of the resurrection is sufficient for every sinner in the world. There is no one who cannot be saved because Christ is risen from the dead. Let me say it another way. Because Christ is risen from the dead and has defeated the greatest enemy of all, there's not a sinner that has to suffer under the guilt of sin any longer. There's no one that has to stumble under it. There's no one has to, that has to fear death or meeting God face to face. Every person that is breathing and living can be saved because of the resurrection of Christ. And Jesus then, because of his resurrection, sends this message to the world. That's the location, the whole world. And then the message itself compels us. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and that's entirely true. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Only those are condemned who do not believe. It makes no reference there to baptism. We're saved by grace through faith and not baptism. But it is true, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But ladies and gentlemen, isn't that something the whole world can do? I mean, who in the world cannot trust Christ as Savior and Lord? I mean, if it said you had to meditate your way into nirvana, as the Buddhists say, well, some of us are too ADD to meditate 10 or 13 seconds. And then, what if you had to sacrifice to multiple deities? Most of the Hindus get tired of that after a while. And then, what if you had to reach a certain religious level of obedience? Well, we all fail. What if you had to give a certain amount of money? Well, the poor would be excluded. Ladies and gentlemen, when he says all you've got to do is trust the cross and resurrection, he has just set a standard in term that everyone can meet. No one has to be excluded unless they decide to be excluded by turning from Christ. And then his power compels us. In verses 17 through 20, we find that they would meet some challenges. And they would meet some difficulties. There would be problems from the dark kingdom of darkness. There would be problem of language barriers in verse 17. There would be problem, problems that would face them from the natural world. There would be accidents that would happen, drinking deadly poison. Uh, there would be the need for restoring the bodies of the sick. And Jesus says here, go anyway, though you have no resources, you have no credentials or anything else. Go into all the world because my gospel, my presence, and my resurrected power are sufficient for the future. Listen, if the father had not raised Jesus from the dead, you would have never heard of him. Have you ever heard of Thaddeus? Well, maybe the disciple, but what about the Thaddeus who claimed in Jesus' day that he was the Messiah? Look, unless you read Acts chapter 5, you, you don't know a thing about him. If Jesus Christ had not raised from the dead, you would have never heard about Jesus. But because He has risen, though with those with no resources, no credentials, no connections, no opportunities, declared this message throughout all the earth, and today you know of Jesus Christ. His name is declared in every corner of the earth. It's exalted in song and sermon everywhere we go, even at the threat of losing a life. It is a remarkable thing to me that this last week in Kenya... That many of those who died at the end, the more than 140 that died at the end, were asked if they were Christians, having known that those who had been slaughtered answered the question yes. And to the last person they said yes. Why? Because Christ is risen from the dead. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Jim Dennison makes a very good argument in his article, The Faith of Abraham Lincoln that Abraham Lincoln sincerely trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. He makes a very good argument. The president, however, procrastinated and delayed joining a church in Washington, D.C. He decided that he would do that April the 17th, 1865, Easter Sunday. And it was his intention to do so. He had delayed because he planned and pondered. He was quite busy in those days as well and decided that he would go ahead and focus his attention on Easter Sunday, April the 17th, 1865, but he never made it. Because on Good Friday, two days before April the 15th, he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. He didn't make it to Easter to do the will of God, but you did. And delay and procrastination is not the order of the day. Christ is risen, and He is worthy of faith, full abandon, and surrender. And you are here, and you can do it today. Some of you need to come to Christ and settle the issue of salvation. need to get over self-righteousness and a false sense of security and say yes to Him. Our staff will be waiting here for you to help you with that decision. Some of you have done that, but you need to follow Christ in baptism and go public. Uh, The Baptism is like a wedding ring. I'm proud to wear mine. It's time for you to put on yours. Some of you need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church and become part of this church family that is on mission for Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, there's no other institution in all the world that is doing what our churches do and that is give the gospel of Christ to the world. We're all. We're the only ones doing it. You need to be a part of that. It's God's will. And so it's time to come and say yes to Him and no longer delay. The president didn't make it to Easter. You did today today is your day. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And let's pray together. Father, I want to bless you because I cannot put into words how grateful we are that Jesus is alive. I praise you that for my years, I've had His power and presence Not because there's anything worthy in me, but there's everything gracious about Him. And Lord, hundreds here could testify of the same. He's accompanied us through staggering sorrows and deep disappointments. And He has quickly canceled the debt of sin against us, every one of us that have repented and believed. And He can do that today for anyone who comes to Him. You have certified this by the resurrection. And I pray, Father, that you would help my friends today to give him the trust and surrender that he deserves. Lord, in these moments, may there be no hesitation or reservation. May we run quickly as the disciples did the day they discovered he was alive and say yes to him because he's worthy. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. You come. Staff will be here. Let us help you with your spiritual need. You come. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. He's risen. He's worthy. You come and come now. Let's sing together